You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Millie Dowler, Marsha McDonnell, and Amelie Delagrange. On the 21st of March, 2002, 13-year-old Millie Dowler went to school as usual. She and her older sister Gemma had gotten a lift with their mother, who was working at their school, Heathside, as a maths teacher. The family lived in Walton-on-Thames, a decidedly middle-class area in Surrey in England. Sally was a teacher and Bob Dowler was a computer programmer and analyst and regularly made the hour-long journey into London for his work. Millie and her older sister Gemma could not have been more different. Gemma was a quiet kid, reserved, and liked things to be in order. Millie, on the other hand, was a whirlwind, a ball of energy, and a comedian. The whole family loved music. Millie played the saxophone, and the girls both sang. Theirs was a typical life, lived by a family of girls in the early 2000s, although Millie, being a newly minted teenager, left her in that strange position of knowing all the words to S Club 7 songs, as well as the lyrics of Smells Like Teen Spirit. That day, the three had arranged to meet and drive home together in the late afternoon, but Millie had finished up the work she needed to do before lessons finished, and so asked her mum if she could get the train home with friends. After getting permission, she left her heavy PE kit bag with her mum, who would drive it home, while she and her friends headed out the school gate for their short journey. The small group walked among the sea of other girls leaving the school after a long day of lessons. It should have taken them 15 minutes or so to get to the station, but likely it was a bit longer. According to Gemma, who released her book, My Sister Millie, last year, Millie liked to take her time walking. She was notorious for dawdling. On top of that, groups of teenage girls aren't known for their focused movement. The girls laughed and chatted on their way, and when they got to Weybridge Station, Millie stopped to buy a train ticket. The other girls had passes. Millie then joined her friends on the platform and boarded the train. Rather than get off at her usual station, Hersham, which was the closest to her home, Millie got off one step early at Walton. She left the train with her friends and some boys. Millie and a friend split an order of chips from the cafe at the station, and she borrowed a boy's phone to ring her dad. He was working from home that day, and she needed to tell him that she'd be home a little bit late. As usual, she had no credit on her own phone to make the call. By that stage, it was quarter to four, and Millie told her dad she'd be another half hour. It was a sunny afternoon, and only a 15-minute walk home from Walton Station, a walk Millie had made hundreds of times before. The road she would walk down was lined with homes and businesses, and always had a bit of traffic moving up and down it. She was the only one walking that way, though, 
and so when her friends turned right to head home, she turned left and began her walk, alone. In the end, Gemma and their mother passed the station only fifteen minutes after Millie had left it, and drove down the same street that she had walked. But when they arrived into the house, there was no sign of her. Her family didn't realise that Millie had already left her friends, and there was no immediate worry about a thirteen-year-old not being home on time. Sally went upstairs to change as she was babysitting that night while Bob was on the phone for work. When he was done, his wife headed out and Gemma was sat on the couch watching TV. By quarter past five, Bob was annoyed that Millie wasn't home yet. After all, she'd told him that she'd be home an hour before. He too was due to leave the house but couldn't until he knew his youngest daughter was there. And so at 5.21, Bob rang Millie's mobile, but it went straight to voicemail. He left a short, stern message asking her to ring him and hung up. He started rummaging for the address book to call up her friends. Amanda, no longer Millie, was in big trouble. Danielle, one of the girls who'd been at the station, told Bob that last they'd seen her, Millie was heading home. Her friend Kara's house was on the route from the station, though, and so, not having their phone number, Bob got into his car to drive over and see if that's where Millie had got to. Meanwhile, Gemma began to worry. She rang her mum and said as much, and began messaging her little sister's friends to see if she was with any of them. Sally decided to put her two wards, her nephews, into her car and return home. Millie wasn't at Kara's. Her friend hadn't seen her. And so next on Bob's agenda was to drive the streets, looking for her. He did the slow drive along the streets of their area, passing by houses he thought Millie had friends in. But still, there was no sign. At seven o'clock, Gemma recalled in her book that her father rang the local hospital in case Millie had been hurt on her way home. When it was confirmed that she wasn't there either, Bob called Adelston Police. A young officer arrived at the Dowler home and ran down a list of questions about how likely it might be that Millie ran away. He had a look through her room and took away her diary and personal address book before leaving. He told the Dallers that the police would be in touch in the morning if there was still no sign of Millie. A full-blown search would begin at that point, and until then, police would begin inquiries. Bob and Sally were to be in touch if they had any news. The family were dismayed. Gemma recalled that, to them, it seemed that no search or significant action would be taken to find Millie that night. Police thought that, at that point, Millie was likely a runaway teenaged girl, and that she'd turn up. If she didn't, they said they'd deploy a helicopter with infrared to see if they could find her hiding in a shed or garage. And so, in the absence of any real action taken by police, Millie's parents and her sister continued to try and locate her through her friends. One girl, Catherine, who was in Gemma's year in school, had seen Millie that afternoon, after she left the train station. Catherine was standing at a bus stop on Station Avenue and saw Millie walking in the direction of her house, on the other side of the street. Catherine's bus had come just after the two caught each other's eyes, and by the time she took her seat, Millie wasn't walking on the path anymore. 
The older teen thought it was weird she could no longer see Millie, but she wasn't terribly alarmed by it at the time. The first real action taken, the first real search for Millie, was carried out that night by her uncle, Bree. He drove to the train station in Walton armed with a torch and a baseball bat, and methodically followed the path his niece would have taken hours earlier that afternoon. He poked his bat into hedges and shone his light into any little gap he could see, looking for any sign of Millie. He walked along the nearby streets, past blocks of flats, checking every dark corner. Besides the few passing cars that night, he came across a lone police car sitting outside the station and a tall, heavyset man with a round face and close-cropped hair out walking his dog off the lead. The hulking man seemed a bit intimidating, but he crossed the road when he saw Bree searching around. Otherwise, there was nothing. Finally, once Millie had been missing for the requisite 12 hours, the police helicopter was deployed in the area, and it swept back and forth with its searchlight looking for the missing girl. The next morning, the police attended at Heathfield School in order to speak to Millie's friends and classmates before they were to disperse for their Easter break. An assembly was arranged through Millie's mum and the school principal and counsellors were called in to deal with any children who might be upset at the news of their missing colleague. Gemma recalled that the next morning was painful for the family. They were desperately trying to find Millie, and decided to have missing posters printed up themselves to let people in the area know that their daughter and sister was missing. Gemma also described ringing her sister once more in the desperate hope that this time Millie would answer and that she'd come home. But the phone didn't ring, and nor could Gemma leave a message to plead with Millie to come home safe. The voicemail was full of similar messages by that stage. Family liaison officers arrived at the door of the Dowler house at 7am. The officers, known to the family by their first names, John and Alice, would be the link between the family and the investigative unit setting up in the nearby police station. The relationship that they would form would last much longer than any of them realised. But to the family, the investigation all seems a terribly slow process, underlined by the fact that when the posters go to the printers, there's still no nominated phone number for people to ring in tips or sightings. The Dowler family finally put their own home phone number on the bottom of their plea for information. By the afternoon, Millie and Gemma's friends arrive in twos and threes to collect piles of posters to put up in areas that the girls frequented, near to the cinema, up at the shops, all along Station Avenue, and along the route that Millie was supposed to have taken home the afternoon of the 21st. Sally Dowler got access to a log of the phone calls on the house landline, and the hard drive of the family computer was downloaded by police to be examined in case Millie had met someone online. Then each family member was questioned closely. If missing kids aren't runaways, then usually it's a member of the family or someone known to them that is responsible for their disappearance. They each gave a detailed recollection of the day before. Gemma was questioned about Millie's relationships. Did she have a boyfriend? Could she have been pregnant? What were her secrets? 
Millie's room was searched in detail with items bagged and taken away. Of particular interest was anything that might indicate that Millie had been unhappy, an angsty and disobedient teenager. The Dowler garage was also searched to see if the family tent was still in place. It was. Then the sheets from each bed was removed. Just before Sally and Bob were to sit down to make their first public appeal for the safe return of their daughter, Sally tried Millie's phone once more, in desperation and hope. She'd texted her every day since she went missing, in the hopes that her daughter would read the messages and know that she was missed, but none of them ever delivered. This time, though, when Sally rang, rather than get the message that the voicemail box was full, this time she heard her daughter's voice, asking her to leave a message. Immediately, it struck Sally that Millie must have accessed the messages on her phone. Her daughter must still be alive. One of the family liaison officers told Sally to put credit on Millie's phone just in case she tried to call, and somehow they continued on with the plan for the televised appeal. Ultimately, that hope came to nothing. A week after Millie went missing, a reconstruction of her last movements was filmed, walking down Station Avenue in Walton in her school uniform with a distinctive American backpack. It aired on the 28th of March, Sally's birthday, and the same day that the entire Dowler house was searched. The family had also collected and handed over the clothing that each wore on the 21st, before packing a few things and moving in with Sally's mother so the search could take place. Both family cars were searched too. That evening, Sally and Bob appeared on Crime Watch alongside the reconstruction as part of a long appeal for information about Millie, pleading with her to come home or whoever had her to make contact. When the family returned to their house three days after the search, every inch of it had been gone through. Carpets had been taken up, closets and drawers were searched, and books and bits of paper were rifled through and scanned. Many items had been taken away as potential evidence. The area around the house was also scoured, and anything that was thought might possibly be connected was collected and bagged as evidence. The Dowler family then had to look at it to see if in fact it was something of Millie's, but nothing was. Apart from the sighting by Gemma's friend, there was simply no trace of her. In the coming weeks, each member of the family was interviewed separately it became clear that a main person of interest in the investigation was Millie's dad, Bob. According to Gemma, the family was informed that she was no longer allowed to sleep in her parents' bed with her father, which she had done for emotional support. Police also questioned Bob and Sally closely about the results of the in-depth search of their family home. Of particular interest was a box found in the attic. It contained bondage and fetish material, and it belonged to Bob. Somehow, the existence of this material confirmed suspicions that police held of Millie's dad. This kink stuff seemed to make them able to make the leap to child abuse. To make matters worse, there were a few minutes of Bob's day that hadn't been accounted for. He told police he'd stopped at a service station, and when they pulled the CCTV from the shop, Bob was there and he had made the grave error of looking at the top-shelf men's magazines. That was basically all that was needed. 
Surrey police issued a statement about the case in early April, saying that they were going through the records of Millie's internet activity. But they went on to say that, quote, there are currently no confirmed witnesses who have come forward saying they have seen a struggle. This leads us to believe that if she has been abducted, it is less likely to have been by a stranger, end quote. It was clear that the focus of the investigation early on had been on Millie's own father. And then the summer passed. Millie's 14th birthday slipped past, too, and the beginning of the new school year. Every time an unidentified body was discovered, the family braced themselves for terrible news. But there was still no sign of Millie. CCTV from the area surrounding Walton Station was gathered. The cameras in the station themselves were not operative the day Millie went missing, though and she was not caught on the cameras from any of the surrounding premises or passing buses. Footage from a building on Station Avenue, the Birdseye Factory, was enhanced by police and even sent to the FBI for analysis. It didn't capture anything relating to Millie, though, just the cars that drove down the road at the same time she would have been walking. One car in particular passed the building just a few minutes after Catherine, from Gemma's year, saw Millie walking on the street. But ultimately, it was a dead end. On the 19th of September 2002, the family got a call from the police. It was the sixth time they had got a call like this. Remains had been found. This time, the remains were discovered 20 miles from Walton, in a place called Minley Woods. A couple who were out searching for mushrooms made the discovery. According to Gemma's recollections in her book, the family were told in that first call that initially there was nothing to link the remains to Millie's case. But even so, everyone assembled at the Dowler house to await the news. It's easy to imagine that no one was really sure what news they wanted to hear. As the evening passed, Police told the family that the remains discovered were that of a female, and that while alive, this person had suffered a broken shoulder at some point, just like Millie. The next day, Millie Dowler was identified through dental records. She had been missing for 183 days. Millie's remains were found just yards from a bridle path in a woods used by dog walkers and mountain bikers. When she had been left there, naked, there would have been a shallow pool of water, which dried over the summer and exposed the remains. Animal activity meant that only partial remains were recovered. The family was devastated. On Tuesday the 8th of October, a public memorial service was held in Guildford Cathedral, but post-mortems and inquests had yet to be completed. Neither of these could settle on a conclusive cause of death for Millie. Her remains were released the following spring, and the family held a private funeral for her on the year anniversary of the day she went missing. The search for Millie Dowler, codenamed Operation Ruby, was until that point the largest investigation undertaken by police in Surrey. The definite impression given by Gemma Dowler's book is that this investigation was not thorough or adequate, and most certainly mistakes were made and yet 250 CCTV recordings were gathered from the area surrounding the spot where Millie was thought to have disappeared from. Police officers called to three and a half thousand homes during the course of the inquiry, and they collected a staggering 
4,800 exhibits. None of these efforts would ultimately pay off in terms of discovering the whereabouts of the missing girl, though, or what had happened to her. A series of vicious attacks would occur before her abductor and murderer was brought to justice. On the 4th of February 2003, less than a year after Millie's disappearance, Marcia McDonnell was murdered in nearby Hampton. She was 19 and lived at home with her parents and three siblings in Priory Road. That night, she had gone to the cinema with friends. They saw Catch Me If You Can. And then just after midnight, she got the bus home on her own. The journey was only 10 minutes. She got off the bus, passing by the onboard CCTV camera, and began the 150-yard walk to her front door. But she never made it. She was attacked from behind, suffering a number of vicious blows to the back of her head. A neighbour found her lying in a pool of blood on the dark path, after being alerted by the sound of a car door slamming, followed by a terrible moan. He rang for an ambulance at 12.23. It was only six minutes after she'd been captured on camera stepping off the bus. Marcia McDonald died in hospital the next day, never having regained consciousness from the catastrophic brain injury she had suffered. The Metropolitan Police launched a murder inquiry, and quickly a local teenage boy with mental health difficulties was suspected of carrying out the attack. He was known for being a bit strange and had followed and frightened a teenage girl earlier in the night. His family said that he'd been at home by the time Marcia was attacked, but he seemed a likely candidate. Before charges could be laid, however, he was sent to a psychiatric unit due to his health difficulties. Then, on the 14th of April 2004, Adele Harbison was attacked. She had been walking home from a restaurant on Twickenham Green, but was found later that evening by a passerby when they saw her lying on the ground. Adele didn't remember anything after leaving her friends at around 10pm. She had suffered three or four massive blows to the back of her head, as well as terrible facial injuries, which later required reconstructive surgery. When police investigated, the actual scene of the attack was discovered, with a pool of blood and Ms. Harbison's belongings scattered about. Nothing was stolen, although it looked to police as if someone had drank from an orange juice carton. The carton was taken for forensic examination, but the evidence was accidentally destroyed. There was a pattern forming, though police had yet to piece things together. Women were being attacked as they walked alone at night. Someone was watching for them, and striking them from behind as they made their way home. The attacks all occurred in the quiet suburbs just south of London's Heathrow Airport. They were safe areas, and yet these women were attacked, struck from behind with a heavy blunt instrument, possibly a hammer. Some had died. In August of 2004, another attack occurred. Amélie de la Grange was a young French woman living just outside of London to improve her English skills. That night she was found badly beaten, lying on Twickenham Green, and she would later die of the wound she sustained in a vicious, motiveless attack. Amélie was born just outside Paris on the 8th of February 1982. 
She was the eldest child of two, and her parents made a move to the countryside just after she was born. She was clever and funny and did well in school. Her main interest was in languages, and in addition to French, she also spoke English and Spanish. She had spent time in both countries and decided to return to England to improve her language skills in April of 2004. She was 22 and settled in Twickenham with a job in a French café in Richmond-upon-Thames. She kept in touch with her parents and younger sister in France daily and quickly made friends in London. She had both a UK and a French mobile phone to keep in touch with people. On Friday the 19th of August 2004, Emily had gone to work in the café and then went shopping. After that, she met with some friends in a wine bar. She called her boyfriend, another French national that she'd met while living in London, and invited him to come over to hers for the night, as her landlady was away. But he was tired after work, and had just moved flats. He made plans with her for later in the weekend. Amélie had three, maybe four, glasses of wine, and then left her friends, crossing the road to a bus stop outside a pub called The Sorting Rooms. She was only a mile or so away from home, and there were a number of buses that would be passing to take her to Twickenham Green. She was found at about twenty past ten by a passerby lying by the cricket pitch in the green. He called for help, and Amelie was taken to the hospital, where she died shortly after arrival. She had no personal belongings when she was found, excepting her shopping bag, which contained a piece of paper with two phone numbers written on it. One of the numbers was for Amelie's boyfriend. When the police called him, he gave them her name and told them that he had spoken to her on the phone earlier that evening. He told them about her job, and police were able to get her full name from her employers. When the friend that Amelie was with, Vanessa, was spoken to, she confirmed that Amelie had had a bag, a discman, and a mobile phone on her when she left the wine bar that night. Colin Sutton recalls how the investigation began in his book, Manhunt. He was the detective chief inspector first assigned to deal with Amelie's case, and at this stage he had no idea the scale of the investigation he was about to embark upon. It was decided that phone data from T-Mobile would be requested for Amelie's phone, not just the numbers that were called, but detailed cell site data too. In addition, CCTV from the area, from ATMs and banks, as well as any other business premises, would be requested and gone over to see if it showed anything of use. Initial information came back from T-Mobile indicating that Amelie's phone had last made contact with the network at 10.23pm, around the time when it was thought that the attack on her had occurred. The phone was by that point six miles away, in Walton-on-Thames. When further information came in, it was confirmed that the network had last pinged the phone at 10.23 and no further contact was made. If the phone had been turned off, it would have been sent a so-called goodbye signal. But that was never sent. So, likely, the phone had been damaged, submerged, or had its battery removed without being powered off. CCTV footage also started coming in, and from what police could tell, it looked as if Amelie had missed her usual stop on Twickenham Green, and had ended up one stop beyond at the bus terminus. She had to walk back. 
There was only about 20 minutes between Amelie being attacked and her last phone ping six miles away. Her phone had to have been transported from where she was attacked or found to that location, and it would have had to have been in some sort of vehicle. Colin Sutton realised that he needed to be looking for a car. And a vehicle would be much easier to track in the darkness. CCTV from every route from Twickenham Green to Walton-on-Thames was requested. In the meantime, considering the last ping to Amelie's phone had been near Walton Bridge, it was decided that a stretch of the Thames was to be searched, in case the phone had been thrown into the water. It took divers less than an hour to find Amelie's purse, keys and disman in the water just south of the bridge next to a park and walking paths. The phone and handbag went undiscovered, but the find confirmed that her things had been dumped there after the attack by her assailant. The similarities between Amelie's murder and that of Marcia MacDonald were noticed by the investigators at this time, though. Detectives were starting to piece things together. Sutton and his team looked at the teenage suspect in the Marsha McDonnell murder and saw that he had an alibi. He'd been at home. This had been dismissed by the initial investigation, but the cases were so similar it seemed likely that one person was involved in both of these attacks, and the teenaged boy had been in the mental health facility when Amelie was killed. Soon the cases were classed a linked investigative series. There was no hard evidence that these cases were linked, but police were looking into it as a possibility. On the 21st of September, another incident was added to the list of crimes that may be linked. This time the attack had initially been discounted due to the different method of assault. On a night in May of 2004, 18-year-old Kate Sheedy had just gotten off a bus in Isleworth when she was mowed down by a car and then reversed over. It had been a deliberate attack, surely meant to kill. However, despite horrific crush injuries, Kate had managed to get to her phone and summon help. Thankfully, she managed to recover from her very serious injuries. What was similar in this case was the area, the time of day, the victim profile, and the fact that she had just gotten off a bus. These similarities meant that the theory that these were linked couldn't be discounted, and Sutton and his team began to look into what could only be considered the attempted murder of Kate Sheedy now too. Kate was able to tell the police that she had seen the car before it hit her. She was walking the short 200 metres to her home, and she noticed a white people carrier type car, possibly a Ford Galaxy, parked in the street facing her. The engine was on, but the lights weren't, and it had dark, tinted windows. She felt the car was suspicious and had crossed the road so as not to pass right next to it, but it came at her at speed and hit her anyway. She thought the license plate might have an M or an N in it. Sutton recalled in his book that a few days after Kate's case was brought to senior investigators' attention on the 24th of September, A detective constable working on the large hall of CCTV footage relating to Amélie Delagrange notified superiors that he might have something. A white van had been parked 70 metres away from where Amélie had been attacked at around the same time the night of her murder. 
The van had sat on the road from just after 10pm until nearly 10 minutes past. Whatever the driver had been up to, he was at the very least an important witness and needed to be tracked down. With a suspicious vehicle identified, footage from other cameras was checked for it. The white van had been in the area of the green for about 30 minutes before Amelie was murdered. It then drove down Hampton Road towards the river where Amelie's belongings had been found. It was identified as a Ford Courier van made between 1996 and 2000. It only had windows in the front and had a number of pieces of damage or wear that made it particularly distinctive. Police began trying to identify the number plate of the suspicious van, but the technology to do this was still in its early stages and it would be slow going, with no guarantee of results. It was also decided to track down everyone who had a similar vehicle registered nearby. A separate database was set up to hold all the information being gathered relating to the search for this van. Unfortunately, given that the vehicle was more often used for commercial purposes, tracking them all down proved difficult. Just because a van had been registered in the target area didn't mean it was used there, so police were sent to observe the areas that the attacks had taken place, with instructions to record the number plates of any white vans that they saw. It was a tedious task. When that didn't work, it was decided that police needed to track down every single Ford Courier van in the country. There were nearly 25,000 of them. While most of the officers assigned to the case were out searching for the van in various parts of the country, it was decided to go through the list of names that had been suggested as possible suspects by the public. There were over 130 men named. The first tip came from a woman named Joanna Collings, and she had visited the mobile police station that was set up on Twickenham Green in the aftermath of Amelie's death. She told police that they should look at her former partner, Levi Belfield. He was a six-foot-one, 36-year-old white male who was familiar with the Twickenham and Walton areas. She said they'd broken up over seven years ago, but when she'd cleaned his stuff from her home, she found a jacket belonging to him with a hole cut into its lining. Inside was stuffed a balaclava and a knife. Belfield worked as a bouncer and a clamper and drove a white van. Joanna said he hated women. He'd been harassing her, and she felt he was responsible for the murder that had taken place and possibly other assaults on women too. At the time, Belfield was on bail for grievous bodily harm after attacking a man with a hammer. This description rang a bell with the officer who read the tip. When the police had been looking at locally owned white Ford couriers, one had been registered to a garage. When they followed up with them, police were informed that the van had been sold to a quote-unquote gypsy named Levi. Then investigators contacted the garage. They had only one thing to add. Levi had left a mobile number with them when he bought the van. Levi Belfield's file was brought to the incident room and gone through. He'd been in a decent amount of trouble in his life, though had only a few convictions on his record. What jumped out most, though, was that in April of 2004, Levi had been arrested for an unrelated incident while driving a Toyota Previa with dark-tinted windows. 
it was a car strikingly similar to a Ford Galaxy. The car Kate Sheedy had identified as similar to the one that had run her over later that month. Colin Sutton made the decision that the officers outscouring the nation for a Ford courier were to be recalled and 24-hour surveillance was to be set up for Belfield. The hope was that Belfield would lead police to the van. In the meantime, they tracked down the man that Belfield had sold the Toyota People Carrier to and seized that. This man was an associate of Belfield and had registered the car to his home address, but had given a false name. While looking at Belfield's full intelligence files, DCI Sutton noticed that Belfield had lived at an address in a cul-de-sac in Walton-on-Thames, incredibly close to the last sighting of a high-profile murder victim in 2002, and he'd lived there at the same time. Investigators heading up the murder inquiry relating to 13-year-old Millie Dowler were contacted. The Dowler family got a phone call shortly after from Surrey Police. They were informed by their family liaison officer that an address off Station Avenue was going to be searched. No specifics were given. In fact, the news was played down, according to Gemma. It was a courtesy call, a heads-up to let the family know that they might see activity off Station Avenue and not to worry about it. That was all. Gemma Dowler described how the family were shocked when they drove down the road and saw the location of the police cordon. It was the place that Millie was last seen by her friend Catherine. The flat being searched faced out onto Station Avenue, very close to the path. The Dowlers rang the police back looking for answers. This looked like the most concrete action taken in their daughter's case since her body was discovered in September of 2004. Initially, the police were wary about giving out further information. A flat was being searched, and forensic evidence was being gathered from it. Eventually, Surrey police relented and told the Dowlers that the man that they were looking at was the one connected with the other murders and attacks on women that had occurred in the area. They said that this man's partner had given information that may indicate he had something to do with Millie's disappearance and death. But Surrey police did not give the Dallars his name. It wasn't possible for Belfield to be named even in the press by court order, and another order had been made barring the publishing of this suspect's picture. Back at the Met Investigation headquarters into Amelie's murder, it was discovered that Levi Belfield kept some very unsavory company. He was known to hang around with other men who were known child abusers. Authorities thought it was possible that they had all been involved in illegal activities, or that Belfield had left something incriminating in the properties associated with them. It would emerge that Belfield ran a rather large and profitable clamping operation of a large and ever-changing fleet of cars. He had a wide social circle, with many of his male friends also working in the clamping business with him. It wasn't unheard of that a person who found themselves clamped by Belfield or his associates would be threatened with violence to ensure a cash payment of their high fees. Despite making a good living from this clamping venture, Belfield continued to work as a bouncer at a number of bars in the area too. The reason for this didn't seem to be financial. Those jobs gave him access to young women, young drunk women. In addition to meeting some of his long-term partners as they were standing in the queue for bars, he also met a number of others. Many of them were teenage girls. 
Some of them may have been drugged and raped. Belfield had access to drugs, anything from cannabis to GHB, and he dealt in that too. By all accounts, he was a pretty unpleasant person to be around. At this stage, things were gearing up for an arrest. Along with Belfield himself, police wanted to arrest his associates and perform searches at eight premises. Police were feeling pressure to get what they believed was a dangerous man off the streets, but it wasn't clear that they had enough to charge Belfield with anything at this point. As the arrest was being planned, however, the tabloid paper, the News of the World, contacted the Met to tell them that they had information police were closing in on a suspect in Amelie Delagrange's murder, and that they knew police had been following him for a number of weeks. They said they planned to print the story even before the arrest was made. Senior media liaisons and investigating officers scrambled to make a deal with the paper to stop the story and to bring forward the arrest operation. And so early on the morning of Monday the 22nd of November 2004, 11 simultaneous operations took place. In Little Benty, the three-bed house that Belfield had been seen going into at 11pm the night before was entered, but to the disbelief of the police, he wasn't there. There had been a police car sitting in the cul-de-sac all night, and there was only one way in or out of the estate and no one had seen him leave, and yet he was not in the house. Just as police began a search of local hotels and B&Bs, looking for the missing Belfield, his live-in girlfriend and mother to three of his eight children, Emma, said she knew where Belfield was. He hadn't left the house. He was discovered lying under a layer of insulation in the attic of his home, Once he'd been located up there, he gave himself up, saying he hadn't known the people arriving into his home at 5am were police, and so he'd hid. Belfield was arrested and brought to Heathrow Police Station, and his solicitor was called. And then he was put into a cell to await his interview. But although his shoes and laces were taken from him, he managed to get the strings from the waist of his tracksuit bottoms loose and attempted to half-hang himself, half-drown himself in the toilet of his cell. Officers heard him yelling and struggling against the string and the water, and he was extracted from the half-hearted suicide attempt. A doctor was called, and though there was no damage done in the incident, Belfield had dangerously high blood pressure, and so spent a few hours in the hospital. When interviews finally began with Belfield, they proved less than fruitful. He was talking, but giving no useful information. But useful information did come from his girlfriend, Emma, who had for nine years endured horrendous abuse at the hands of Belfield and told police that his other partners had experienced much the same treatment. The abuse alleged included rape, assault, and false imprisonment, and if Belfield could be charged with this, it would most certainly keep him off the streets while the murder investigation against him proceeded. All three of his long-term partners told similar stories of severe violence. Emma, though, also told a story that was of particular interest to the police. In 2002, she and Belfield had briefly split up, and she'd moved to a flat on Collingswood Avenue in Walton-on-Thames, part of a complex that fronted onto Station Avenue. After a few months, 
Belfield convinced her to take him back and he'd moved into the flat with her while he renovated their home in Little Benty. And in March of that year, she was house-sitting for a friend. Belfield had stayed there with her, but then, on the 21st of March, he seemed to drop off the face of the earth. He wasn't calling every few hours to check up on her like he usually did. He wasn't answering the phone, and he'd left with her car, so she was stuck in the house. Belfield had come back to the house at about 11pm, with no explanation of where he had been. He was also wearing different clothes, clothes she knew to have been in the closet in the flat in Walton, but she didn't question him. She knew what would happen if she did. Later that night, Belfield wasn't able to sleep and got up at half three, telling Emma he was going back to the flat. He said he wanted to be able to have a lion without the three small children bothering him in the morning. And when she returned to their home after her house-sitting duties were completed, their bed had been stripped of its linens. Belfield told her later that their dog had soiled it and so he'd thrown it out, but it wasn't in the bin. Again, Emma knew better than to question him. A day after this, Levi announced that they were moving back to the old house in Little Benty, despite six weeks remaining on their lease and work still to be done on their house. A few days after that, Belfield took her car again and said that it had been stolen from a car park. He brought her to the police station to report it missing, but it was never found. But Belfield refused to comment on everything the police put to him about his various abuses of his partners. He replied no comment to each and every question. In the end, he was charged with nine counts, including rape and assault, relating to all three of the women. He was remanded in custody and denied bail. Police now had the time that they needed. Colin Sutton decided that he would go back and look at the cases he believed to be linked to Amelie's murder. If Belfield was responsible for these two, he should be brought to justice and the families of the victims should know what happened to their daughters. So he started with the murder of Marcia MacDonald, the young woman attacked from behind just minutes from her home. The case file there had been closed, given the main suspect was detained in a secure hospital and was unlikely to ever be held legally responsible for the crime. But if Sutton was right, this teen wasn't responsible. As he poured through the investigation files, he found a lead that was not followed up, one that had been disregarded when the boy came into the picture. A light-coloured car caught on CCTV at the time Marcia had gotten off her bus. Sutton wondered if this car might prove a link to Belfield. At the very least, its driver would be a witness. He would follow this up. Sutton then moved on to the case of Kate Cheedy, who had been run over by a car on her way home from the cinema with friends. This wasn't a murder investigation. Thankfully, Kate had survived. But that also meant that it was a bit more difficult to access the information. The hard copy of the investigation files needed to be retrieved from the station that had dealt with the case. The records hadn't been computerized. While they were out there, they also picked up anything that had been stored as evidence. While combing through the labelled plastic bags, an officer discovered that there were two VHS tapes preserved. They were from the pub across the road from where Kate had been hit, and only one of the evidence bags had been opened. 
only one of the tapes had been watched. It emerged that a mistake had been made in the initial investigation. The first tape collected by police was the one from earlier in the day, and it had been swapped out at midnight, just before Kate had been run over. When this was noticed, the tape for the next day was requested. Both were put into bags, but when the officer tasked with watching the CCTV looked in the log, they only saw the first entry for the first tape. There was nothing of interest on that tape, but the other tape had never been seen. When Sutton and his colleagues played that tape, the bus that Kate had been on was seen travelling up the road, and then what was definitely a white Toyota Previa was seen going the other direction. The registration plate couldn't be made out, but there was a long mark on one of the back panels, made by spilled petrol. It matched the car that police had seized from Belfield's associate, Noel Moran, the one that he had been sold by Levi Belfield, and the one that Belfield had been arrested in just days before someone left Kate for dead in the middle of a quiet road steps away from her front door. And so both Marcia McDonnell and Kate Sheedy's cases were now included in the investigation. Police were now proceeding with the proposition that the crimes were all linked. They just had to prove it. Nothing of any real value, fingerprints, DNA, or fibres, had been found in Belfield's home, and the van had not turned up. Investigators had little hope that it would in the end, given how Belfield was able to so thoroughly get rid of Emma's old car. The focus became teasing out any and every tiny bit of circumstantial evidence that would support their case. Police spoke to friends and associates of Belfield, but they were understandably nervous of speaking out against a man with such violent tendencies. Authorities even went so far as to appear on BBC's Crime Watch programme with an appeal for information about the Toyota Previa in relation to Kate Sheedy's assault in the hopes that it would show those who had relevant information that the police already had good information on him, and there was no way Belfield was going to be released. If they felt safe from him, perhaps they might come forward. The contrived appeal on Crime Watch had some success. Richard Hughes, a friend of Belfield's girlfriend, Emma, came forward with a number of pieces of information. He'd seen Belfield shortly after Amelie's murder, crying non-stop and saying he needed help. He also recalled that Belfield had driven the white van to Kent shortly after that murder. And just after that trip, Belfield had been trying to sell the vehicle. Hughes also recalled helping Belfield to fit white metal panels to the bottom of the rear doors of the van in an attempt to cover rust marks. It was certainly a unique-looking vehicle. The friend that Belfield and Emma had stayed with during their impromptu holiday to Kent confirmed that he'd driven the van while staying with her, and a man who'd worked for Belfield also remembered the unusual van with the headlight out. He said he'd gone fishing with Belfield in the summer of 2004 in it. A cyclist unknown to Belfield or any friends or family also came forward after the BBC programme. He described how he'd seen the strange white van on two occasions, the 17th and then the 19th of August. 
Both times the van had been going way too fast and driving erratically. Later, the cyclist was identified in the CCTV footage. It was likely Belfield's van that he had seen. After that came the task of piecing together Belfield's movements around Twickenham Green that night and comparing them to Amelie's known route. In his book Manhunt, Colin Sutton described how a member of his team painstakingly took the location and timestamp from each piece of CCTV footage for both. And with Amelie's slow yet consistent walking pace, it was realised that at about the time Amelie and Belfield crossed paths for the first time, her pace had slowed. The slowdown was significant enough to indicate that she had stopped for a minute or two, between points where she would be picked up on nearby businesses' CCTV. It appeared that Belfield had stopped, spoken to Amelie for a moment and driven on past her, only to come around the green and wait for her, near to where she was attacked. They also realised that the van had been cruising around the area of Twickenham Green for 45 minutes before crossing paths with Amelie. Then police went back to Emma for more information. They could place the van at the scene, but without the actual van or some sort of confirmation that it was in fact Belfield driving it, the evidence against him was weak. So, in addition to information that Emma could provide, police looked for corroboration from information they already had. Data from Belfield's phone. Phone records showed that a call had come into Belfield's mobile at 9.37pm and had been routed through the mast that covered Twickenham Green. It had come from the landline at his home and was sent to voicemail. Emma remembered making that call. She outlined her evening and her interactions with Belfield on the 19th of August. He had been out working, doing his clamping, and was supposed to return to bring her to do a shop in Hayes. But there had been no word from him, and so at half seven she took a taxi there herself. She needed nappies for her three-week-old baby. In fact, this was the first time she had left the house since giving birth. The whole shopping trip had stuck out in her mind. Belfield had arrived home while she was out and rang her to see where she was. He told her he'd come to collect her, and when he arrived in his white courier van, he took the other two children to Toys R Us while Emma finished the shopping. He rang her again at 8.22 to say that he and the kids were done and were waiting for her. Then they drove home. Emma had to unload the shopping from the van herself when they got back to the house as Belfield had remained seated in the front to make a call. There was a corresponding outgoing call from his number at 9.22, through a mast near their home in Little Benty. And as soon as the unloading was done, Emma said that Belfield had driven off again. But about 30 minutes later, Emma realised she'd forgotten to buy milk, and tried to ring Levi to ask him to bring some home, but he hadn't picked up. This was the 9.38 call. Emma's trip to Tesco was further confirmed by a receipt. Though she had paid cash, the shop kept their till rolls, and police were able to locate Emma's receipt for that night. She'd paid for the shop at 8.46pm. It all checked out, and it put Belfield in his white Ford courier with his phone that night. The night it was captured on CCTV at Twickenham Green. The night that Amelie Delagrange had been murdered. 
The cases against Belfield for Marsh's murder and the attack on Kate were also shaping up. The light-coloured car seen on bus CCTV from the night Marsha was killed was identified as a Vauxhall Corsa, a type of car that Belfield was known to have owned at the time. Its registration plate could not be made out, but after painstakingly going through all the registration records of that sort of car, it was discovered that this Corsa was one of less than 200 that could have possibly been recorded that night. Statements would be taken from the registered owners of these vehicles, and in the meantime, the Corsa that Belfield had owned was seized from its new owner. In addition to the CCTV that police had from the pub across from where Kate Sheedy had been run over, one of the mobile phones seized during the search of Belfield's home had a video clip of interest on it. It was confirmed to have been taken the night the hidden run occurred and showed Belfield entering a flat that he sublet just after 2am. He was wearing a coat indicating he had been outside and was testing a flashlight. Police thought that perhaps he was going to go check his car for damage. By March of 2006, all but five of the courses being looked at in relation to Marsha McDonald's murder were accounted for. The Crown Prosecution Service was now happy to proceed with charging Belfield in relation to Amelie Delagrange and Kate Sheedy, but these other cars would have to be eliminated before he could be charged with Marsha's murder too. And so, when that was complete, by the 25th of May 2006, Belfield found himself charged with two counts of murder, two counts of attempted murder, and an attempted abduction. Police were also able to charge him with additional counts relating to other attacks on other women. Those women were Anna Maria Rennie and Irma Dragoshi. Anna Maria had been sitting at a bus stop at about half eleven at night in October of 2001. She had been offered a lift by a man matching Belfield's description. When she refused and got up and walked away, he got out of the car and tried to force her with him. The 17-year-old struggled and screamed and managed to get away. Belfield had owned a car matching the description of the one Anna Maria recalled. And on the 16th of December 2003, Irma Dragoshi was standing at a bus stop on the Old Bath Road in Longford. At 7.15, she called her husband to tell him that her bus was late and she would be delayed. The next thing she knew, she woke up in hospital, having been struck in the back of the head with a blunt object. When Belfield carried out this attack, he'd had a passenger in the car with him, Sunil Garou. Police spoke to him, and Mr. Garou confirmed that Belfield had suddenly just stopped the car, dashed out, hit the woman standing at the side of the road and hurried back to the car. Belfield then sped off, laughing. The two men never spoke of the attack again. Other potential crimes emerged during this phase of the investigation, too. They involved a series of young girls in their early teens who had been drugged and raped by a man matching Belfield's description. According to then-DCI Sutton, there wasn't enough evidence to bring those cases forward, and it was also thought that adding these charges to the ones Belfield already faced would make for a desperately complicated court case. They needed to concentrate on one thing at a time. A trial date was set for May 2007, and work began on preparing the case to be presented to court. 
While that work was ongoing, news was got that a cellmate of Belfield's had information. Belfield had confessed to him the murders of Marsha MacDonnell, Emily Delagrange, and Millie Dowler. It was interesting, but ultimately the case proceeded without this cell block confession, given the obvious problems that go along with such admissions. In February of 2007, the defence had Belfield's case listed for hearing. The sheer amount of disclosure from the prosecution service that they needed to get through meant that they needed to ask for more time to prepare for the trial. The motion was not objected to by the police or the Crown Prosecution Services, and the trial was put off until the 1st of October 2007. There were, of course, other pre-trial submissions made, but the most significant was the decision made by Ms Justice Rafferty that the evidence relating to the murder of Amélie could be considered in relation to the other murder and attempted murder charges, as well as the two assaults committed at bus stops against Anna Maria and Irma. The prosecution's case would be that the crimes were part of a series, and linked, and so they should all be ultimately considered together by the jury. The legal proceedings began as scheduled in October, opening with 10 days of legal submissions, mainly relating to the material that could be published by the media. Though no extreme reporting restrictions were put in place, one banning the publication of photos of Belfield, which had been in place since his arrest, was continued. After this, five women and seven men were impaneled in the jury and began hearing what was expected to be a five-month-long trial. The Crown Prosecution Service was represented by Brian Altman, Queen's Counsel, and on the other side, Belfield's lead lawyer was Mr. William Boyce, Queen's Counsel. After the opening statement for the Crown was made, detailing the evidence that would be presented in the coming weeks to make out their case, two days were spent bussing the jury, lawyers, and defendant to view the various scenes involved in the crimes. Evidence finally began then on the 19th of October. Anna Maria Rennie was the first witness to the stand, and it became clear that Levi Belfield's team meant to put forward the most robust defence possible. It was suggested to her by them that she had only reported the attack that she alleged Belfield had carried out to deflect attention from drugs that had been found in her flat, and that she had effectively made the whole thing up. Belfield denied any involvement in this at all, but he and his legal team also decided to take the approach of looking for any inconsistencies in the witnesses and evidence presented against him to weaken the Crown's case. The same was done when the evidence relating to the death of Marsha MacDonald began. First, junior counsel for Belfield took issue with what was shown in the CCTV of Marsha exiting the bus that night. He said it was quite possible that the car seen passing on the bus footage was simply slowing to take a turn when the brake lights went on, rather than preparing to stop, in order to begin an attack on the lone woman. When it was revealed that the car had in fact been driving at less than 10 miles per hour at the time, and surely would not have needed to use the brakes to make a turn, counsel suggested that the defendant was just being cautious while he was driving. If indeed it was the defendant, he still denied being there, of course. The jury was shown the CCTV, and the investigation leading to the identification of his Corsa as the one seen on the tape was outlined to them. 
When the time came for Irma Dragoshi to take the stand and give evidence in relation to the attack on her, there was an objection from the defence. This wasn't the first halt they'd called to proceedings. There were a number of complaints throughout regarding the press coverage of the case, but this time was different. It had been agreed by the judge that Ms. Dragoshi would be allowed to give her evidence from behind a screen so as not to have to look directly at the defendant. These kind of concessions have to be weighed carefully by the judge before they're agreed to because of the potential to prejudice the jury against the defendant. If the witness needs to be screened from him or her, what does that say about the person whose fate they're to decide? So Belfield's team objected to the screens. They said they were willing to allow her statement to be read into evidence, though, giving up the opportunity to cross-examine an important witness and effectively foregoing the ability to challenge it. But the screens were allowed. The prosecution decided that they wanted to call her anyway. She would appear. Belfield was furious. It seemed that he had just wanted his victim, if she appeared in court, to have to look at him. Other witnesses that appeared complained that there were friends and members of Belfield's family who had glared at them throughout their time on the stand in an attempt to intimidate them. Kate Sheedy also gave evidence in person to the court. After she described the hit and run, the defence put it to her that firstly she was mistaken about the identity of the car, that it had been some other people carrier that had knocked her down, and secondly they asserted that the incident had in fact been an accident and the driver of the car had gotten out to check on her after she'd been run over. She denied both of these strenuously. When she was finally dismissed, evidence was presented regarding the CCTV taken from the pub that captured the hit and run, and about Belfield's ownership and use of a Toyota Previa that matched the one seen in the footage. By December, evidence was being heard in relation to the murder of Amelie Delagrange. CCTV from that night around Twickenham Green was shown, and the cyclist who'd seen the white van driving erratically took the stand. But when it came time for Emma, Belfield's ex-partner, to give evidence, there were again objections from the defence regarding the use of screens. They said that this was even worse for their client, that his ex-partner should want to be obstructed from his view was even more prejudicial than an alleged injured party. A police officer who had acted as a liaison officer for Emma outlined for the judge the abuse she alleged against Belfield, and unsurprisingly, Ms Justice Rafferty agreed to the screens. Still, Emma was so upset it took nearly ten minutes after her first entering the courtroom for her to compose herself enough to be able to answer questions put to her. She struggled through, however, and told the court about her relationship with Belfield his difficulties with mental health, including depression, suicidal thoughts, and panic attacks. Then she outlined events from the evening Amelie was killed, and that Belfield had had his phone, and had been driving the van. There were a few applications from the defence to declare a mistrial, or that Belfield had no case to answer, on the basis of prejudicial evidence, or the quality of the evidence. Both were refused. In January of 2008, the Crown Prosecution informed the judge that their case was complete and turned things over to the defence. The first witness to take the stand was, incredibly, Levi Belfield himself. He denied any involvement in the murders and assaults he was accused of, except that of Irma Dragoshi. 
He had been seen by a witness, but explained that it was actually a friend of his who had attacked the woman, and the two had driven away together. Belfield was adamant that the women who said he had been driving his Ford courier van when Amelie was killed were mistaken. He'd been driving a Citroen Berlingo, which was very similar, he said. He also said that he had a lot of different vehicles, and that he lent them out to his friends often. So if, in the CCTV, it was in fact one of his cars shown, it certainly hadn't been him driving. He conceded that he had been where his mobile phone data put him on the relevant evenings, but continued to deny any involvement in the murders and attacks. It seems that Belfield thought that by taking the stand, he would be able to spin a story that the jury would buy. He had been in trouble before and had always managed to get through it, but he was questioned for five full days. He couldn't maintain a facade of a wrongly targeted man. He couldn't keep his story straight, and he couldn't keep his composure. The only other two witnesses presented on his behalf were expert in nature, someone to explain to the jury about confirmation bias, and a lawyer who went through evidence and leads that weren't followed to show it might be possible that the police had missed something in their investigation. And then came the closing speeches, which were followed by Justice Rafferty's summing up and instructions to the jury. They were sent out and continued deliberating for two weeks until they were told that a majority verdict would be accepted. Then the jury filed back into courtroom number six and announced that they had yet to make a decision on the charges relating to Anna Maria Rennie and Irma Dragoshi. After that, Belfield was found guilty of the murder of Marsha MacDonald by a majority of ten. He was also found guilty of the attempted murder of Kate Sheedy by a majority of 11 to 1, and he was found guilty by a unanimous jury of the murder of Amelie Delagrange. The following day, the 26th of February 2008, Ms Justice Rafferty imposed a life sentence for each of the three counts which Belfield was found guilty of, and recommended that he serve a full life tariff for each. Belfield had refused to be present for the sentencing and remained in a cell in the courthouse while it was handed down. The charges relating to the other two attacks were left on file. The jury would not continue deliberating on those counts. Overnight, the press had been free to print what they liked with the reporting restrictions now over. On the front page of The Sun, the headline read, He killed Millie too. The jury had been tainted. Everyone had seen it. Also left on file were the nine charges against him relating to his ex-partners. They could only be revived if Belfield had his conviction overturned on appeal, and the Court of Appeal directed it. Given the three life sentences, the investigation into the string of drug rapes against teenage girls was also left to sit unexplored. Other blitz attacks with a similar set of circumstances which came to light in the wake of the convictions, like that of Adele Harbison, were sidelined too. The Dowlers watched the coverage of Millie's case and its possible connection with Belfield in horror. They knew police believed he was responsible, and they thought so too, but they also knew there was a reason that Belfield's name and face were kept from the press covering Millie's murder. This kind of media attention had every possibility to impact an eventual trial. When Maria Woodall, the third and final senior investigating officer, 
to head up the inquiry into Millie Dowler's murder, called to the Dowler house in January of 2008, she informed the family that there was going to be a press conference in relation to Millie's murder. The family were given no further details, though. They weren't told what would happen there, and in fact, even Woodall didn't know. The Crown Prosecution Service had decided to take the lead in the announcement and to keep the information close to their chest for whatever reason. In the end, it was announced on the 25th of February 2008 that Belfield was indeed going to be charged with Millie's murder. The press and public were told at this point that he would also face charges regarding an attempted abduction of a young girl the day before Millie was taken, and yet another incident the month before where it was alleged he'd exposed himself to a young girl on Station Avenue. A trial date was set, and Belfield was to be back before the courts in May of 2011. In the run-up to the trial, Bob and Sally Dowler were called to a meeting with the police. This time the meeting wasn't about the upcoming trial against Belfield. It was about another investigation entirely that had been going on for a number of years, one which they'd had no knowledge of before that moment. Police had uncovered evidence that a private investigator, hired by the News of the World, had accessed Millie's voicemail messages while she was missing just a few days into the search for her. He'd listened to them and possibly deleted a number of them. This is how it came about that Sally had managed to get through to leave a message days after the phone had been full, and had given the false hope that Millie was perhaps somewhere out there still. Like members of the royal family, celebrities and football players, the Dowlers had also been victims of a gross and indecent invasion of privacy, and one that would play out both in the media and in Parliament, resulting in the shuttering of one of Britain's longest-running newspapers. But all of that would happen after Belfield's second murder trial. Once again, all of the evidence gathered by the investigative team had been handed over to Levi Belfield's defence team in advance of the trial and disclosure. Much of it was evidence gathered from Millie's room, and much of it had first been considered by police when it was thought most likely that Millie had run away or had been killed by their initial chief suspect, her own father. Belfield studied the disclosure too, and this time, unlike his previous murder trial, there was an alternate story in his defence ready-made. He and his defence team would exploit this to the fullest. Belfield's trial began on the 10th of May 2011 in courtroom number 8 of the Old Bailey. Mr Altman was again acting for the Crown Prosecution Service, with Mr Geoffrey Samuels, Queen's Counsel, acting for the defence, a man that Gemma Dowler would later refuse to name in her book, so great was the distress inflicted on her family. He was acting on the specific instructions of his client when he questioned Bob and Sally Dowler, meaning he was obliged to do as Belfield asked. And what he wanted was to make the trial as painful as possible for Millie's parents. First came the opening statements regarding the evidence against Belfield in the murder of Millie and his attempted abduction the day before. After that, the court travelled out to view the scene at Station Avenue and then around the corner to Collingswood Place, where the flat was located. The charges relating to Rachel Coles were dealt with first, and the jury heard how 
The day before Millie went missing, Rachel walked home from school. A man in a red car pulled over and said that he recognized her as a new neighbor. He'd just moved in down the road from her and offered her a lift home. Rachel had seen two car seats in the back of the car, one pink and one blue, along with rubbish like magazines and wrappers. Rachel told the man no, and just then a police car passed. The man drove off when he saw it. Rachel went home and told her parents what had happened, and they were worried. She had a gut feeling that something was wrong, but second-guessing herself, she looked at all the cars on her street to make sure she didn't see the one that stopped, that perhaps she'd been mistaken. But her gut was right. That car was not from her road, and it was not parked there like it would have been had the older man with the round face been telling the truth. Rachel's parents phoned local police to report the incident, and although there was no action to be taken per se, the officer on the line assured the worried parents that the information had been taken down and recorded. And it had in fact been entered into the police database. But somehow, this record was misplaced, and it wasn't until much later that police discovered that there had been an incident the day before Millie was murdered, involving another schoolgirl, at the same time of day, on the same road. It was a tragic missed opportunity for a lead in the case that had been nearly immediately culled. Rachel was able to identify the man who had tried to get her into the car as Levi Belfield. Both she and her mother took the stand and were subjected to minute cross-examination by Belfield's lawyers. Then the same was done for Bob Dowler. He was the first of the family called to give evidence. Mr. Altman began by leading him through the events of the day Millie went missing by the stage over nine years ago. He described his daughter and their family and how worried they had been when the hours passed and there was no word from her. The cross-examination was harsh. First, some of Millie's writings found in her room were read to the court. They were the dark, broody writings of a teenaged girl, and it was put to Bob that he had been entirely unaware how unhappy his daughter had been. If that was the case, it was possible, probable even, that Millie had decided to run away. Then the defence barrister brought up the box that had been found hidden in the Dowler's attic. Bob was asked what he thought Millie would think of the items had she found them. He was forced to admit that his daughter would have been upset and disgusted by the material. She would have seen it as a betrayal. It was put to him, maybe Millie had found the items and then run away. Or maybe, as he was the person the police had first thought responsible, maybe she had found the box, confronted him, and he was in fact the man the police should have been looking for. Thankfully, Altman was allowed to redirect this upsetting line of questioning when the defence was done. But the press had heard all of this, and at least for that moment the spotlight was off Belfield, and onto the bereaved father forced to lay open his own shame to public scrutiny in the court. Sally Dowler experienced much the same treatment as her husband. It was put to her that she had favoured her older daughter Gemma over Millie, and that Millie was deeply unhappy, engaged in risky behaviour both on the internet and out in the world, and had possibly taken her own life in Minley Woods. Mr. Samuels put it to Sally that she had had no idea that her youngest daughter was leading some sort of double life, 
He told her that the technical examination of the Dowler computer had turned up Millie's secret email address, complete with provocative username. It also showed she had visited chat rooms and had posted online that she was being bullied and felt herself ugly. Sally was forced to admit she'd been unaware of this, that all of this had happened under Sally's nose. Samuels suggested that she had been unaware and uncaring of her daughter's depression. When Sally was finally allowed to leave the courtroom, she collapsed to the floor on the way out. When Gemma saw her mother fall, she was sitting in the hall just outside courtroom number eight, waiting to give evidence herself. Instead, she shrieked in dismay at seeing her mother. They were both beside themselves with anguish. After that, it was decided to not call Gemma Dowler to the stand. Her written statement was read into court instead. The family had been through enough. Millie's friends took the stand one after another, outlining the day that Millie had gone missing and what kind of girl their friend truly was. After that, a black curtain was brought into the court. It was time for Emma, Belfield's former partner, to give evidence, and she had once again been granted the special arrangements that would keep Belfield's eyes off her while she testified. She told the court about the night Millie had disappeared and how the couple had been staying at a friend's, house-sitting. But Belfield had gone off on his own, taking her red car and insisting on a quick move back to their old house immediately afterwards. She'd told the court about how, given his absence and the fact he'd thrown out their bedsheets, she thought he'd been with someone else that night, which was not uncommon. When she asked him once more what he'd been up to, she reported that in response he'd said, quote, What, you think I done Millie? End quote. Although Belfield couldn't see Emma, he could hear her, and that meant that she could hear him too. He developed a need to loudly clear his throat as she was speaking, a cough that he was cured of once her evidence was over. Police evidence revealed that they had in fact conducted door-to-door inquiries at the Collinswood Place flats. Every single occupant had been interviewed, with the exception of those in number 24. Police had knocked 11 times to try and get them, but by the time someone answered the door, they were new tenants. No one followed up with the estate agent to get the details of the previous ones. Again, expert testimony regarding Belfield's phone and its location data was presented by the prosecution to show his movements on that day nine years ago. His phone had been powered off during the time Millie was taken. When the Crown prosecution concluded its case, the defence announced that, unlike in his previous trial, Belfield would not be taking the stand himself. Altman outlined the evidence he had presented, the CCTV, the car, the location, the fact Belfield was there, and then acted suspiciously afterwards. The defence, once again, suggested Millie had been a runaway from an unhappy home this time somehow ending up the victim of another killer who happened to be in that exact place at that exact time. Then Mr. Justice Alan Wilkie gave his summing up, and the four women and seven men of the jury were sent off to deliberate. They discussed it for eight hours, stopping periodically to ask questions about the evidence that was before them. When they returned for the final time, the jury announced that they had not reached a verdict in relation to Rachel Coles and the charge of her attempted abduction. 
On the counts of abduction and the murder of Amanda Dowler, however, the jury announced that they found Levi Belfield guilty. He yawned as he was taken from the courts amid the sobs of Millie's family. The following morning, Belfield refused to go to court to have his fourth life sentence handed down. Again, it was recommended that he serve a full-life tariff. The charges relating to Rachel Coles would not proceed, due to the volume and nature of reporting on the case that had occurred overnight. Nearly immediately after the trial was completed, the Dowlers found themselves embroiled in the hacking scandal involving the news of the world. It was not only one private investigator that had engaged in immoral and illegal acts to get a story. It turned out that kind of behaviour was rife in the paper. When people began to really dig into the issues raised by this, it was discovered that members of the police force had been paid to leak information to the press, and that politicians had turned a blind eye to curry favour with one of the globe's largest media companies. The Dowlers appeared at the Levinson Inquiry to describe what had happened to them. It was their testimony that brought home for people the real-life impact of the scandal. It was easy to dismiss the hacking of Hugh Grant's phone, less so the phone of a murdered girl. It was disgusting. That wasn't the end of the trauma for the Dowlers, though. Eventually, Belfield broke his silence on what happened to Millie that day. Over the period of two months from December 2014 to February 2015, he told police officers what he'd done, but that came with demands. He would speak only to female officers. They were not allowed to ask questions or record the sessions in any way, even by taking notes. Police authorities gave in to the demands and got their information. Belfield then told another prisoner what had been arranged. According to Gemma's book, the Dowlers were told nothing of the admissions and the new information until that prisoner was set to be released, and police feared that he would go to the press with the story. When Bob went to the station in Woking at first, he was told what had happened and that they couldn't give any detail of what Belfield had said due to the quote-unquote sensitive nature of the information. Again, in her book, Gemma recounts how she and her mother, Sally, made their way to the station once more a few days later. Initially, the police officers would not give any details of the information they had, but after everything she and her family had gone through, Sally was not leaving without being given the information she had a right to. She dragged it out of them. She'd put a framed photo of Millie on the table between them and forced it from them. Police told Sally and Gemma that Belfield had said Millie had died by strangulation. Belfield had used a scarf, one owned by his girlfriend's mother. He said she hadn't died in the flat, but somewhere else. And most heartbreakingly, she'd lived for over 24 hours after her abduction. Police told them it was possible that the scarf used was buried out in a wood somewhere and covert searches would be taking place for further evidence to back up the claims now being made by Belfield. In the end, hoping to take power back from Belfield, and to beat any story that might make it depressed about the shocking confession, the Dallers decided to release the information themselves. At least this time, they would be in control. Neither of Belfield's applications for leave to appeal his convictions was granted. In his second appeal application, he had argued that letting in evidence of his previous convictions in that trial 
had unfairly prejudiced the jury against him. The argument was, of course, rejected. He has since denied that he confessed to Millie's murder, though news of a confession into an earlier murder in 1996 has also been reported. This was a murder of a mother and child in Kent who were beaten to death with a hammer. Again, Belfield has since rubbished this confession. Likely, you will hear more about that case in future. Stay tuned. Belfield is now 51 years old. He has converted to Islam and changed his name to Yusuf Rahim. He is currently being held in Franklin Prison in Durham. Colin Sutton's memoir of his role in the investigation into Belfield's crimes was turned into a dramatised miniseries last year called Manhunt. The book is a testament to the excellent police work that went into identifying a man who had no doubt carried out a spree of blitz attacks and went on to be a serial murderer. It's definitely high on the recommended reading list. As is My Sister Millie by Gemma Dowler, which serves as a portrait of who Millie Dowler was beyond the headlines we all saw after her disappearance and death. It truly restores to this young girl the vibrancy of her life while recounting the trauma her family went through, both because of her loss and also because of their experience of the judicial system and all its flaws. Personal tragedy is no longer personal once it goes to trial. Again, this is one for your list. It's striking that, in this case, for once, at least one of the victim's names is better remembered by the public than that of the killer. Even the moniker, the bus stop killer, is not one that springs to mind. It's a reminder that it's possible to amplify those names, Millie Dowler, Marsha McDonnell, and Amelie Delagrange, and to remember the good that was taken, rather than the vile which remains. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. Better yet, tell a friend. This is really the easiest way to support your favorite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. I do love hearing from you, so get in touch. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Lauren Bell, Eileen Glancy, Annette Owens, June Clark, Laura Spence, and Tessa Teven. Thank you so much, guys. Also, a huge thank you to this week's sponsor, Beer52. Remember to head to beer52.com forward slash men's to claim your eight free beers. That's beer52.com forward slash men's, M-E-N-S. Our theme music is Quinsong The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music by Kevin MacLeod and Juanita Meisel. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode, including the books cited, can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time. Don't do anything I wouldn't do. Where she would be picked up on nearby businesses. On nearby businesses. On nearby businesses. On nearby businesses. CCTV.